Hiya, film freaks, and thanks for saying yes to the 88th edition of Scoring at the Movies. We sift our way through sports flicks and we spoil them from front to back. I'm the idiotic goofball who can't afford to fix his broken windshield and who's talked out of his ass a time or two. Not quite like Jim Carrey, but metaphorically speaking, Ryan Ellis. And here's a person who has angrily scribbled the words laces out two or three thousand times in his life, Christy Gregorio. Alrighty then, Ryan, let's do this one. You don't talk out your ass quite the same way as Jim Carrey because your ass actually speaks German as opposed to English. It's weird how that worked out, but you can't explain these things. It's just got a mind of its own. Useless trivia for you. Did you know that Einhorn, which is the Sean Young character's name through most of the movie, until we find out the big mystery reveal... I think I know what your trivia is going to be. It's German for... Unicorn? Correct. There we go. Which is two things. One is, of course, the horn, dick, basically, penis... Will we go R-rated today? I don't know. Maybe. And the <laughs> other is that it's unusual. When this movie came out, I would have been 13, and I'm pretty sure I saw this in the theater, or shortly thereafter. Was it R-rated, though? No, I mean... You, you were th- tall, weren't you? Even so, you buy a ticket for whatever PG-13 okay. movie, and you just go into the movie you want to watch. It's the kind of screenwriter gag that they threw in, chuckling to themselves, or I don't know if it was a group of people, single writer for this or what. It was Jim Carrey. The Jim, director, Tom Shadiak. Jim Carrey had a writing credit yeah, in this? The only writing credit Jim Carrey's ever had was on this movie. Oh, so 100%, I would guarantee it's just one of those things that they put in there and giggle to themselves about. And I only noticed it on this watching. This is the first time when I heard the name. I'm like, Einhorn. Knowing now Ein is one in German, mm. right? So one horn unicorn. It's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't pick up on it before, so it can't be that dumb. It's smart dumb. dumb smart, smart dumb. That applies to a lot of Jim Carrey movies back in this era. Yeah. Okay, let's get that beer open over there. Right on. What do you have? Cowbell, I see. I got a fever, Ryan, and the only prescription is more cowbell. <laughs> What's the... It's a passion fruit there you go. IPA. You know me. All fruit, all the time. Indeed. And I have still, once again, made Canadian club richer, along with Diet Pepsi. Okay, then. So, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, or Detective Zune... Z-O-O-N, as he was known in Greece, was released (laughs) released by Warner Brothers on February 4th, 1994. Was it a hit? Oh, yes. It grossed about five times its budget in America alone, and worldwide made even more. So, small budget, huge hit. And this was the first of three movies that year that Jim Carrey made. He'd been in movies for a long time, and of course, he was on In Love and Color on television as well. Mm -hmm. But he'd been acting for many years. Earth Girls are easy, baby. Also, The Deadpool. He's... The villain, or one of the villains, anyway, he's in that movie as well. The Jim, not Jim, the Clint Eastwood film, the last one of the Dirty Harry films. Oh, okay. Deadpool now. I didn't say the Deadpool. You did say the Deadpool. I just heard Deadpool, and I had a whole brief moment of, am I in some sort of time warp here? But yeah, of course. Okay. Clint Eastwood movie. I didn't know he was in that. A relatively significant role. I think he's James Carey as well at that point. Oh, that was in his James Mm -hmm. Carey era. (laughs) So he did this one this year, 94. What did I say? It came out in February. 
Yeah, February 4th. And then The Mask, I didn't look it up, but I think that was a spring. And then Dumb and Dumber was later that same year. They all succeeded. And now this guy, after many years of working in the business, had that big breakout. People probably think he was an overnight success, but I'm sure he'd tell you, no, no, no. Took a while. And then, of course, everything he made, well, not everything, but most things he made for a while there were big hits. Or The Cable Guy wasn't a big hit, but it's a cult movie now, and it made him a lot of money. I liked The Cable Guy a lot when it came out. I know people ragged on it, and I think it's gotten a little bit more favorable retrospective reviews now, but Dumb and Dumber is still one of my favorite slapsticky comedy movies of all time. The funniest of those three that year, I think, too. That's unquestionably true. I think it holds up reasonably well, given the fact that it's 27 years old now, but this movie, as the first of that trio, and really the first starring role that Carrie had in a big movie anyway... You really understand why in 1994, in this period of time, when slapstick comedy and over-the-top physicality was really becoming popular, thanks to movies like The Naked Gun and stuff like that leading the way, why he became such a huge sensation. He had it. He he had had it. it. Honestly, it makes me a little bit sad to think of how his career ultimately evolved once he took that outspoken... I don't want to get into like political discussions around things like vaccines and stuff. But he was an anti-vaxxer with Jenny McCarthy when they were dating before anti-vaxxing was so big the way it is now. At about that period of time, his career also took a real nosedive, not just because I think he got blackballed or anything. I do think that was a factor, but he also quite outspokenly wanted to be taken more seriously as an actor. So I think he very purposely turned away from silly comedy at a certain point in his career. And fair play. He's a good actor, too. I don't want to take that away from him. But he's well, a before the decade was over, he did one of my favorite movies that anyone's made, certainly that he's made, The Truman Show. Mm-hmm. And then a few years after that, he does Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Bev and I have done podcasts for both of those on the Top Runner Project. And Man on the Moon was the year after The Truman Show. And they all have comedic elements, but they're not really comedies compared to what no. this is. So he was taken seriously long before the Jenny McCarthy anti-vax thing. But it's funny, looking at his resume, and apart from Dumb and Dumber 2, which could have been a big hit, it wasn't. Maybe they waited too long, for one thing. Mm. But that was one of the last, if you want to call it, prestigious releases he's had, and that was quite a while ago. Well, even if you just look at his comedic library of movies, once he took that turn, like you said, towards Truman Show, Man on the Moon, all of those more serious roles. The Majestic. Yeah, The Majestic, yeah. Bruce Almighty is like the one silly comedy I can think of him starring in around that era. That was huge. Did I remember him starring in period? And certainly that was any kind of hit. And then subsequent to that, like you said, A, he hasn't really had any starring turns. And I know he's a lead on a TV series on Apple TV or something now, I think. Bev and I saw it, I think it was two seasons worth, and they canceled it on, I think it might have been HBO, actually. Jeff Pickles was his name. Why am I forgetting the name of it? Bev would know. Anyway, yeah, yeah, that was a show he did for a few years kind of wild to think of because he's not untalented obviously he's not super old it's not like he's he... remarkably talented exactly you said a few minutes ago genius in this movie okay we'll elaborate on that because when you walked in here tonight you said this would be a short conversation it's already gone longer than you predicted the whole podcast <laughs> might go just talking about jim carrey yeah. i would agree that this guy has incredible talent genius may be a little bit strong but he's somewhere in the rank of that the way you'd say charlie chaplin was or buster keaton back in their day yeah richard Pryor as a stand-up comic i guess more than an actor of course eddie murphy probably somewhere in that category as well but in this movie not many people would try this or would succeed at this i wasn't really a big fan of the film but i do want to hear what you mean by genius then I mean it mostly from the same perspective that you might describe Michael Richards, Kramer. Okay, there you go. 
Yeah, like, I know what you're saying now. Can anyone else be Kramer in the way Michael Richards is Kramer? I don't think so. And can anyone else do East Ventura, The Mask, certainly, because think of the physicality of that performance, whatever you might think of the movie. Dumb and Dumber is a much less physical comedy role for him. There's still a lot of facial expression that is involved in the performance, and there's a lot of silly physicality too. things like the neon tuxedo sword fighting with the canes and stuff like that. In this movie in particular, he's really Jim Carrey to 11 as far as that physicality goes. Didn't always work for me either, but again, in a retrospective look at the movie in 1994, seeing how this would have been different enough from the slapstick satire that had come before. It was dialed up to the next level, but he pulled it off. It's juvenile, don't get me wrong, it's super juvenile, and me at 40 years old doesn't really appreciate a lot of it, but I had to tip my hat to him because nobody else was doing it like this or anywhere close to this well. Apparently Rick Moranis and Adam Sandler were two people that were thought of for the role. Sandler Rick couldn't have Moranis? done Moranis? Yeah, it would have to be a different movie if it was Rick Moranis. <laughs> but I also read that in some of the original writing, I'm not sure if Carrie was always involved as a writer or if it was more that he got a writing credit once he was cast and then, okay, let's rewrite this. I'm sure it had a lot of rewrites. Yeah. And I'm sure, oh, I guarantee there are a lot of improvs on the set as well. Oh, yeah. So maybe Carrie wasn't an original writer. But I was reading that it was more of a movie where he was, I don't know about Forrest Gump exactly, which was the same year as this, by the way. But he wasn't this extreme extrovert. One of the biggest extroverts you'll ever see in any movie. The original character. So maybe Carrie's contributions changed that. Then Moranis makes a little bit more sense. Although he can go big too. He's the funniest thing in one of the funniest movies ever, Ghostbusters. He is. It's just, I'm trying to picture, and we've talked about this in other movies when we've talked about alt casting that Mm could have been. But yeah, if you cast Rick Moranis, it can't be as physically silly. It can be big because you're right. When he's playing the accountant character whose name escapes me right now in Ghostbusters. Lewis. Lewis, yes. He is probably one of the best things in that movie. This is going to sound weird to say, but that kind of performance out of Moranis is kind of like an understated big, if you know what I mean. Like, he's not out there. He's just silly enough that he stands out. He's on a cartoon. Because right. two of the movies that Carrie made that year, his character at least, is truly a cartoon. The Mask, anyone who's seen the movie knows what that is all about. And seeing this movie, he is. The rest of the movie is pretty normal. Udo Kier, who plays Camp, the guy at the party when the do not go in there yeah so he's the one that's running that party he's a serious actor he's from i think germany he's been in 160 plus movies the idea was to cast somebody who's not typical for this kind of movie and then have him play the kind of role he usually would he's not trying to be funny and he's not courtney cox has a pretty ordinary type of role but she's not really playing comedy she's not really doing anything other than being the supportive girlfriend although she's got a lot of screen time and she has second build sean young doesn't amp it up all that much tone loke doesn't really the biggest overactor in the whole movie, other than Jim Carrey, and he's the biggest overactor by 20 miles, is Dan Marino. Yeah. He doesn't have a lot of acting to do in this. He only ever made one movie, and this was it. As an actor, he did consult on Any Given Sunday, which we covered way back at the beginning of this podcast. Right. And that makes sense. That's a Miami set movie, and that character could be Dan Marino, the Dennis Quaid football quarterback. Could yeah, be. can't remember the character's name now. Yeah. So anyway, when Marino does quote-unquote act, you can see why he didn't do it again. Yeah, this was not exactly the star-making vehicle for Dan Marino that maybe he thought it was going to be. As soon as he showed up on screen with any meaningful lines at all, all I could think of was the comparison against something about Mary. Right? Because oh, got Brett Favre. Brett, Brett Favre. 
who has a similar kind of screen presence in that movie, but he pulls it off a little bit better. He's in it a lot less, I think, isn't he? Then Marino's in quite a bit of that. Obviously, the finale, he's there the whole time. He's not doing anything the whole time. It's obviously Carrie and Young that have most of the screen time, but he's a big part of it. The most impressive part of that is his bloody hairline. He's like you, Ryan. You have a proceeding hairline. <laughs> the guy has got to be in his late 30s, I would guess. Maybe so. He's gaining hair as he gets older. gaining hair. I think you did a good job of running down some of the major players in this movie. And there are a few legitimately major ones. You said Courtney Cox, probably the prime example of that, obviously after this movie came out. But I couldn't help but think when I was watching it this go-around that it might have been a better movie if Courtney Cox was playing the lieutenant character, the Einhorn character, and Sean Young was playing the Courtney Cox character. Okay, why is that? I didn't think Sean Young did a particularly good job of the over-the-top, hard-ass, comedic... You're picturing Courtney Cox in Scream, then. Yeah. Because she did that in Scream. Not just Scream, though, but she does a forceful, comedic personality very well a number of times in her career. Cougar Town being a great example of her comedic chops. I know, obviously, Friends is her big role, but she's a very understated character in that show. Much more over-the-top in Cougar Town. I didn't love Sean Young's performance in this movie, and I thought Courtney Cox was underutilized. So I thought, you know what? If those two roles were flipped, if Sean Young was given the, like you said, by-the-numbers facilitator character in this movie just to get Carrie from point A to point B, and you give Courtney Cox the opportunity to really ham it up, I think it's a better movie. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. Well, you talk about the score factor. We always do that. We'll do it right now. Courtney Cox, at this age, even the age she is right now in 2021, but especially in 1994, and Sean Young, too, for that matter. They're both stunning. Beautiful women. Jim Carrey. Great hair, very lithe, <laughs> yeah. flexible. Good-looking guy at times, sure. He gets it on early in this movie, too. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that doesn't make sense, though. The way he is, the way he's so over-the-top and annoying and such a weirdo and a loser in so many ways. Oh, <laughs> loser, is that what he's always saying? <laughs> loser. Loser. Yeah. And she sleeps with him, meaning Courtney Cox does. Yes. Don't really buy that too much, but it's just for comedy's sake because the animals are surrounding and watching. And there's a story online about how the animals didn't really want to behave during that sex scene. And Cox had to basically protect herself under the sheets with Jim Carrey from the animals jumping on the bed or doing this, attacking each other sometimes because they were, I'm sure not the entire scene where they all happened to be there, but at least a few of the wider shots, they would have to. In the scenes where Jim Carrey's got animals all over him, I'm sure there were a lot of takes where they didn't cooperate. They probably took dumps on him or attacked each other, what have you. But the other thing sexually, of course, in this movie, and this is something that ages so badly. I can't say then because I didn't see this movie until probably the late 90s on DVD or even video. But I feel like it wouldn't have been all that classy or really all that funny even then. And that would be the transphobia. Yeah, you're talking about the Einhorn reveal Mm -hmm. at the end. That Sean Young was always playing a man, supposedly. And I guess in the shots of Ray Finkel, when she was a kicker for the Miami Dolphins, that's actually her with a mustache and a wig or something. I would have picked up on that, but I read it ahead of time that that was the case. Looked and thought, I guess I can see that. That's pretty good because she just looks like a dude. Yeah, it's well and yet Sean Young doesn't have a mannish quality, I wouldn't say. No, not at all. It's a little bit odd, but when Carrie's trying to out Einhorn at the end of the movie and he's ripping her clothes off bit by mm-hmm. bit, she's a fantastically beautiful woman. And that's part of what doesn't age very well either. It's one thing for everyone to overreact to having kissed her. Yeah, that was awful. That, that's that, what I'm saying. I don't think that would have been all. I guess it probably was because that's one of the more famous things from this movie, but it seems to me that would have been that funny then. That, can you kiss somebody? I thought they had sex. I haven't seen Ace Ventura not true. I saw this movie on Netflix maybe three months ago, and I must not have been paying much attention because I didn't remember that they didn't sleep together. Because when he finds out in all his deductions, Einhorn is Finkel. 
Einhorn is Finkel is Einhorn, all that stuff, and realizes, I got kissed by a man to do all the things that Ace does. She kissed you, for crying out loud. If you'd gone to bed, well, then you would have realized what was going on, because apparently the penis is still there. Come on. We don't need to dwell on this too much, because I think people that watch Ace Ventura now either think it's funny or they think it's awful. I was more embarrassed for them. Even then, it just feels like you're going to go this far over the top. And then it's obviously played for a gag that when they find out, meaning all the cops do, that Einhorn was always a man. I know I'm dead naming, but just to explain the situation for those who maybe don't remember this part of the movie. For all of them to spit and to wipe their teeth and their tongue and everything is played for a laugh. But A, they all kissed one of their bosses. And B, you all overreact like this to kissing somebody? What the hell? Grow up! I couldn't remember the specifics of the ending, to be honest with you. So the first 90, I was like, I don't love this movie. But again, from a retrospective perspective, I can appreciate the performance. And it actually holds up reasonably well. Like, there wasn't anything out there offensive going up to that ending scene. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I remember now. Well, the scene where Jim Carrey is suctioning his face with the plunger, that was earlier in the film, maybe 25, 30 minutes to go. And it's only an hour and 25 minutes long. Yeah. You're including that as part of the ending, in a way, I guess, then. Yeah. Even though it's a separate scene. Okay. But I remember, even back in the mid-90s, watching it, thinking, what a like, disappointing and odd way to end a movie. And this is 15-year-old me in the mid-90s watching it. Obviously, in 2021, it's kind of an unforgivable thing. I mean, we've talked about movies that are well past the 90s, 80s, and 70s that we've watched before. And there are some things that you can look back and say, okay, well, that wouldn't be cool if you tried to put it in a movie in 2021, and we have to acknowledge it now, but you can accept it maybe as an artifact of its time. This is one of those things that's a lot harder to just pass off and say we can accept it as an artifact of 1994, because even in 1994... I'm surprised they thought it was cool then. Yeah, it was a stupid and poorly executed ending gag for this movie. The one thing, though, that I did kind of appreciate about the gag is one of the things that you just pointed out now wasn't anything to do with Finkel specifically, or at least not with Finkel's transition, but to the reaction of everybody present spitting. Mm. The gag here is not just that these guys are disgusted. But but, Einhorn gets around. But Einhorn gets around. That was the funny bit of it to me, was that, okay, so it's kind of like a twofold gag, and part of it kind of worked for me, but all the transphobic stuff obviously fell super flat. I could see this actually being a twist. If you made a movie that was kind of based around this overarching plot in Ace Ventura, but you made it a serious movie instead. The Crying Game. Yeah. I could see this being an ending to a serious movie that made sense and it would have been fine, but because they played it the way they did, I'm like, eh. You have to acknowledge it and you have to wag your finger at the movie and say, I wish you guys had been better in 1994 and hope we don't see it anymore, Mm. I guess. Einhorn was driven so insane by missing the winning kick in the Super Bowl. They don't say what year, but the Dolphins did make the Super Bowl in 84, and they did lose. They said it was 84. Did they say, okay, there you go. So they're making up some stuff about reality, because they made it that year, but they didn't lose on the last second kick. They're fictionalizing the 84 Super Mm. Bowl. Although Marino was part of that team, just as he still was in, well, this was shot in 93. It was shot actually from May to July of 93. So if you want to go by this logic of what had just happened a few months before in the 92 season that spills over with the playoffs and the Super Bowl into 93, mm-hmm. the Dolphins made the playoffs in 92 and 1994, but missed the playoffs the year this movie was made. But it's just interesting that their playoffs, and they were generally in the playoffs back in that era, surrounded the year they shot this movie when the Dolphins ran the Super Bowl as the home team, which had never happened in the history of the NFL until this very season when... This past season, you mean? As in months ago, Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay was yeah. the home team in Raymond James Stadium. And of course, Brady won another Super Bowl with his new team. 
but it had never happened before. And of course, it'd be tough for the Chicago Bears, the Green Bay Packers to win Super Bowls playing where they are because the Super Bowl is almost always in the South. Sometimes it's been in Minnesota. Maybe it's been a giant stadium. I don't even remember that. Probably not. But it's almost always in the South. And then the other thing, too, is the Eagles, who are their opponent in the Super Bowl in this movie, made the playoffs in 92 as well. So they're picking two teams that could have been in the Super Bowl in this era. They're not completely fantasized, like the Cleveland Indians being a playoff team, a Super Bowl, Super Bowl, World Series caliber team in the 94 sequel to the Major League or a playoff team the first year when they were dreadful the years before that. But that leads me into the nutshell. Since we're talking about sports now, talking about football specifically, I was surprised how much football is actually in this or football-related material Yes, because I thought it was a bit of a joke that this is a Netflix's sports section, but it is. This, by the way, is the final episode you and I will ever record in this basement. The next one we do will be in the new house, so we'll see how the audio acoustics are. You need to put in just a pause here, Ryan, so that you can insert some sad music. That just <laughs> We had joy, we, we had fun, we yeah. had seasons. And Quick montage of recordings done in the basement of the old house here. Well, about half the time you were in your own place because of COVID. Yeah, we won't nostalgically reminisce via montage of the, the Zoom recordings. Long think. edits because of the slight delay. Oh, God. Okay, so anyway, the nutshell, because this is about the Super Bowl. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, in a nutshell. So who won the Super Bowl? We don't find out. <laughs> Jim Carrey attacks the mascot. They honor him. Credits. <laughs> that pretty much tells you what the movie cares about. But Dan Marino and the Dolphin are back, meaning the actual Dolphin. So I guess they're going to rally to victory. I think the best depiction of the sport that we actually see in Ace Ventura is probably the dolphin when he's kicking field goals and things like that. I did find it very strange that this whole movie centered around a mascot. I don't know to what extent live animal mascots are still a thing in the States, whether it's professionally or at the college ranks. I imagine it still is a thing in various places. It's just so not a thing in Canada that... Mm. It took me aback a little bit. And took me a little bit aback when the reporters were all clamoring, we gotta see Snowflake, I gotta get some shots for the evening right. news. I'm like, the mascot for the Dolphins is such a big story that they want clips of his new trick for the evening news. Miami's got some real slow news days going, mm -hmm. apparently, in the mid-90s. Did you notice that when Carrie gets into that fight with the Eagles mascot... It's because Carrie's trying to sneak up on that albino pigeon that mm -hmm. he's trying to catch. Big the, reward. The big reward. And he's at the refreshment table with the Gatorade jug. Adam Sandler tie-in, right? The no, water boy. <laughs> although I like that. No, I was just thinking it's the Gatorade jug next to the Miami Dolphins bench. That's the Dolphins bench. Right? Why is the eagle mascot? Why is the there? eagle mascot <laughs> drinking out of their cooler? <laughs> I've subsequently written a sternly worded letter to Jim Carrey about this glaring loophole. He's on Twitter. <laughs> you could tweet him. He'd never respond, but he might see it. Well, I was going to say that maybe Shady at Carrey and Bernstein wrote in the idea the Dolphin's so vital because we've got a pet detective in the first place. And that of must course, be them saying, yeah. how can we tie these things together? I think it's a concept that's so alien to me as a Canadian sports fan that I couldn't quite wrap my head around it at first. Everywhere that that climactic scene takes place is in some sort of boathouse or mm -hmm. dockhouse. So presumably that's on the open water and Snowflake could just swim down beneath the door. And <laughs> Get away. Out. Free Willy, Snowflake. Yeah. Free Snowflake. It's not like they have her in a tank. They're just in like a boathouse. I hadn't thought of that. Well, maybe it's not actually open to the open water. I think the bigger question is how do they get Snowflake 
and Dan Marino back to that game so fast because it was going on during all the events at the end when Ace is humiliating this person who may be a villain. Well, he's a villain and a terrible person, but it's pretty hard to watch Sean Young's reaction actually because she does have that shameful look of I'm being stripped naked here right now and they're all just letting it happen. There's a bit of a pathos moment that Sean Young plays there. But how do they get everybody back to Joe Robbie Stadium? Even if that was 10 minutes away in time for a football game, he has to get suited up, meaning Marino does. They have to get a dolphin and a tank of water, which they don't have a portable one in the first place. <laughs> if this was the day before, fine. If it was hours before, fine. But it was during the game when this was all happening at the end. Actually, that's true. They never do explain the dolphin bit of it, do they? Getting Marino there makes some sense. Ace is driving him, and they're both hanging their heads out the window of the car. Yeah, and we know one thing about Ace Ventura... Well, we know a couple things, but we know one thing about his car specifically, and it's that it is a high-performance machine. Right. He has to put premium in it, so that thing can really tear up the road. So mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me that Marino gets there on time, but you're right. The logistics of getting Snowflake from the uh, crime scene to the stadium, it doesn't make sense. They have the tank set up in a public space that everyone can watch, right? Which they would if this hadn't happened. Okay, fine. Which makes sense, but how did they get the dolphin in there without interrupting everything Mm -hmm. airlift they really missed an opportunity for an operation dumbo drop moment it's gonna just like gotten a military helicopter in there and airlift or a star trek 4 moment right just admiral there be whales here no there be dolphins here oh right we see jim carrey do a significant amount of star trek impersonation he does a lot of impersonations of other movie characters in this a lot of references to other films there's also a lot of time-specific references in this. Some of them were even lost on me. If you're 12 years old and you're watching this for the first time now, some of these references would make no sense to you. That was true about Rob Williams' performance as the genie in Aladdin. Some of it was timeless because he was doing impressions of people like Peter Lorre, who even at that point had been long dead. But anyway. Well, maybe the critics didn't like the logistics of getting the dolphin from the beach house or the boathouse, whoever it is, <laughs> yeah, to that's what they did. Joe Robbie, <laughs> because they didn't like this movie very much. 49% of critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 4.9. Average was 4.6 out of 10, 61 reviews, and 57% of audiences. So that's two splats. The sequel, Ace Ventura 2, Ace Ventura When Nature Calls. Yeah. I forget there's a two in there. 25% of critics on Rotten Tomatoes, so even worse. But the audience is 72. For this or for the sequel? For the sequel. I haven't seen the sequel in a very long time either, but it has some very memorable moments in it, for sure. One of the more iconic moments of Jim Carrey's career is when he's hiding out the fake rhinoceros and he gets overheated and the hatch sticks and he has to crawl his way out the ass of the fake rhinoceros while a safari group is coming oh, by. Oh, that's that movie, okay. That's a very funny scene. It's mm-hmm. kind of gross and weird, but it's very funny. Jim Carrey, as we've said already, is very committed, though, so I can see him come up with that idea, let alone saying, oh, I'll do that. He probably thought of it. Yeah. Well, this movie was a success at the box office. Like we said, it was 16th in 1994. The Mask and Dumb and Dumber made $100 million, though, so they were even more successful than this was. And the movie we covered that year, Angels in the Outfield, was 26th that year, so also a pretty good success. Not R-rated like this was, though. Slightly less directed at teenagers than this was. Completely innocent. Ace 2 outdid even this, though. It was the next year, in 95. It was fifth at the box office that year. And it had the second biggest opening weekend of 1995 mm. behind Batman Forever, which Jim Carrey was also sense. in. Freaking huge star in the mm-hmm. mid-90s. Happened fast. When it happened, it finally happened fast. And big. Yeah. He was nominated for Worst New Star that year, though, for this Dumb and Dumber and The Mask. What? Yeah. If you wanted to nominate him specifically for this, 
I might not agree because I feel like even if you don't like the brand of humor, you have to appreciate the physical talent that this guy has, the comedic talent. That Especially he has. when he goes to the Shady Acres place. And of course, it's a play on the director, Tom Shadyac. Yeah. The commitment in that scene. I didn't really laugh almost at all this movie, but I did laugh when he was at the rest home, I guess you might call it, with Courtney Cox, just so he can infiltrate and find out what was going on when Einhorn was in there many years before. Yeah. As stupid as it is when he's running the slow motion football route and then he rewinds yes. himself. That's talent, man. Yeah, like, is. I wouldn't nominate him for something like Worst New Star or Razzie or anything for this, but I could see why you would. But to lump in Dumb and Dumber, which is frankly a brilliant comedy, it just is. One of the great endings of all time. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly one of the funniest endings of all time. I struggle with that. It did get nominated for two AFI lists. Top 100 laughs, didn't make the laughs, but it was nominated. And okay. top 100 quotes with the one he does say, I didn't know how often he says it until he saw the movie yesterday. All righty then. Yeah. I'm surprised actually they didn't recognize, do not go in there. I think After he got attacked by a shark <laughs> and has no blood on him, he's torn up, his clothes are torn up, but otherwise he's fine. But he's yeah. covered in water. So of course the logic is that the toilet exploded on him. But that was pretty funny actually too. But you're right. The best part, to me anyway, the best part of, of that whole sequence is still, what's his name that plays camp? Udo Kier. Udo Kier. That guy is so deadpan right. throughout the entirety of don't it. Don't play the comedy, Udo. Okay, I can do that. I don't love that whole sequence still. I don't think I liked it all that much when it happened. I thought it was a little bit too stupid, but Udo Kier's utter deadpan response to everything that was happening and total unwillingness to acknowledge that anything out of the ordinary happened, it's fantastic. And do not go in there is pretty funny, too. Yeah. I think part of what makes this movie kind of work is the fact that most of the characters in this movie are playing things pretty straight up, and then it's just mostly Jim Carrey going over the top. Sean Young did that sometimes, too. I think when she was trying to play, like, super aggressive, hard-ass, 1980s-style police lieutenant. Mm -hmm. But even so, there's moments where she is playing it super straight, and it still comes across super dumb. Like, the investigation of the purported suicide at that guy's condo, right? The operations manager. Which for, she was actually guilty of murdering him. Yeah, which it turns out she was. And so Ace infiltrates the crime scene, as he always seems to do. And incidentally, I think one of the things that this movie does do well is they could have made Ace Ventura uh, Chris Farley-esque, Beverly Hills Ninja kind of character mm -hmm. that was utterly bumbling and just being carried along or accidentally falling into the answer. But he's not really stupid. He just acts stupid. Exactly. And I think that was admittedly a very good choice. The fact that he's a super capable guy and very intelligent and good at what he does, but he acts like a moron. Figuring right? out the whole thing with the door. The, oh, it looks like Jim Carrey's actually holding that high note, by the way, closing the door, opening the door, closing the door, opening the door. Lung capacity, baby. Even before that, when he goes outside and he's checking out the railing, he's talking to Sean Young's character, and then he's like, yeah, you're right, I'm probably out of my depth or whatever. And then he points, oh, we've got that spot of blood by the railing. Mm -hmm. And Sean Young goes over there and sticks her bare finger into the blood evidence on the railing and holds it up, and then proceeds to come back inside and yell at Ace Ventura about how the police have to do something called collecting evidence. They need evidence mm -hmm. to support their decision. I was like, you just ruined whatever evidence existed there. Well, that would be a problem, except... She's guilty of killing this person, so she maybe doesn't care at all. In fact, why yes. not ruin the evidence? This movie, much like Scream, which Courtney Cox was in, that's as much of a mystery as a horror film. And this is as much a mystery as a comedy a lot of the time, because of the Einhorn thing, trying to figure out who even kidnapped both the dolphin and then the dolphin's star player, and the Einhorn twist, which you didn't really even need in this in the first place, just yeah. finding out who actually kidnapped Marino, except having the grudge against him for not holding the ball properly. 
I'm not even sure if Dan Marino was the, at that point, in 84 or in 92, 93, 94, holder for place kicking. Maybe some quarterbacks do that. Not that many that I'm aware of. I haven't watched football in many years. But you have to tie them together. Dan Marino's a star player, so it's got to yeah. be his fault. And the Finkel obsesses writing laces out thousands of times over the bedroom and everywhere else and never getting over it. And at the same point, also happens to go through something, identifies as a woman. And Sean Young looks beautiful, so... This is somebody who's not really well cast in that way. I think you're right. Maybe Young and Cox reversing roles would have been more fun. Yeah. As much as I did appreciate how straight a lot of these actors played their characters in this movie, including people like Tone Loke, his character is just deadpan detective. He can act, though. He's pretty good in Heat the year after this. Nothing against Tone Loke. I'm just saying that character in this movie basically shows up once or twice just to give Ace Ventura some information, and then that's about it. To be his only friend on the force, too. Yeah. If you had gone ultra silly with the Einhorn character. So instead of making Einhorn a transitioning transgendered person at this stage in the movie, what if you had Ray Finkel put on a wig and pretend to be female police lieutenant Einhorn and nobody noticed he still had his mustache, for instance, right? And was pretending to be police lieutenant and nobody noticed until the very end of the movie. And they have it play out similarly where everyone's spitting because Einhorn still gets around with the police force a lot or whatever. Just get rid of the trans element of it so it's not quite so transphobic. Instead, it's like slapsticky gag about, oh my God, this guy put on a wig and all of a sudden nobody noticed who it was. Kind of like a Superman glasses on, glasses oh, yeah, off okay. kind of thing. Still had your silly ending if you wanted it to, but gotten around some of the more problematic elements of it. At the end of the day, this is just a vehicle for Jim Carrey to be ridiculous, right? Mm. But there is more story than I would have thought, and more of a mystery going on than I would have thought. There is, and you have to appreciate the fact that, like I already said, Ace Ventura's character is capable. He has a very clearly explained, logical path of investigation. And he does solve the case. Yeah, he's the first guy that thinks to actually look in the filter trap for the tank that the dolphin was stolen from. He finds the stone in the Mm -hmm. ring. He connects it to the 1984 AFC Championship ring. And then he grabs a picture of that team and one by one tries to figure out if any of these guys got a ring with a missing stone. Because every movie needs a montage. I'm like you. I didn't really laugh. I think the one time I did giggle a little bit was, I don't know what player it was that was constantly running on the track. I'm not mm. familiar enough with... with looks like an actual athlete, though. Some of the other guys are just big dudes. That, they may not have been athletes at all. Yeah. But he looked like an athlete. I assume he's a real football player. Maybe he was a dolphin. Probably was. Because this was shot in Florida, too. One of the reasons they got Marino to be in it in the summer off season for him. Probably other Dolphins had to be some of those players. Yeah, they probably just recruited a bunch of guys for some cameo spots and had this guy run the track a couple times in different outfits. But watching Kerry try to take a look at his ring three times and failing and then eventually just saying, screw this, chloroforming mm-hmm. him, I appreciated that sequence. But if you accept it for what it is, you can probably enjoy this, I think, as long mm-hmm. as you're willing to overlook the more problematic elements of its ending. Right. The other thing that's a mystery to me is what was in that package he was delivering to Randall Tex Cobb in the beginning because he deliberately destroys it and you can hear glass breaking. He does so many vicious things to it. The guy accepts it though. He takes it into his house and throws it down but what was actually in there? And that's when of course Ace takes the dog to take back to the ex-wife and he gets a blowy for his troubles. He doesn't get paid I don't think. Probably not. Again, physical comedy. Mm-hmm. Watching Jim Carrey hold on for dear life to the rafters while he's getting his reward mm-hmm. for finding the dog. That was legitimately some pretty funny, over-the-top comedic acting. Yeah, I don't know what's in the package. I mean, I know when I receive Amazon deliveries, I just chuck it half-heartedly into the corner, don't even open it up myself, so I can appreciate not knowing. 
The question I had was less to do with the package, though, in that sequence, and how did he get the stuffed animal dog into the position it was behind the door? Because when the guy turns around and says, get away from the door, the dog is right up against the backside of the door, which mm. was closed at that point. But of course, when Jim Carrey was there, the door was open. The physics of it, Ryan, the physics make no sense. Tom Shadiak. How I, could you? This was his first movie as a director, so maybe that's part of the reason why this kind of stuff happened. Okay, so I'll just delete the second sternly worded mm -hmm. letter. You're right, though. It's I, a good point. For Shadiak. I like bringing that up. That's no reason you shouldn't bring that up. For the Criterion Collection release mm -hmm. of Ace Ventura, hopefully <laughs> they can somehow find a way to edit out these kinds of concerns. Get George Lucas in to help out with some <laughs> post-production effects. You're going to have a Bantha just walk in front of Carrie in one scene for no good reason, <laughs> just CGI'd into the Criterion Collection? We can fix it. <laughs> Lucas. <laughs> Somebody pointed out he sounds like Kermit. Sounds like so Kermit. I just aim for Kermit and it's close enough. Really <laughs> you good. got what I was doing. Yeah. So Tom Shady, I could just said this is his debut. He also did direct The Nutty Professor, which was a monster hit for Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Liar Liar with Carrie again, which was, I watched. And again, an example of a movie. I didn't laugh at that much when I saw that maybe a year ago or so on Netflix. But man, the talent on that guy. Jim Carrey, for all of his faults, as we've already said in this podcast, is remarkably talented. And Shadyac also directed the two Almighty flicks. So Bruce Almighty, which was a monster hit, and Evan Almighty that Steve Carell was a star of. I don't think Carrey's even in it at all. Don't think so. No. Although Morgan Freeman plays God in both. But the first Bruce Almighty was huge. This was big. Liar Liar was big. Nutty Professor was big. Shadyac has a hell of a resume as a director. Or had. He hasn't really done that much in the last little while. You'd think with all those comedies in his resume that he'd be getting knocked. Maybe he did have his door knocked down. He said, I don't want this anymore. So neither he or Carrie are really doing what they used to do, which was make mega blockbuster comedies in the 90s and into the 2000s. By the way, a few more cast members we'll talk about before we wrap here. Noble Willingham is a very small role. He's the bad guy in Last Boy Scout. He's Shelley, the guy who owns the fake football team in that movie. Is he? Yeah. I think he's the owner of the team. He is, yeah. Yeah, Riddle. I so he plays another football owner. And this was a couple years after Last Boy Scout. Yeah, a very small role. I thought maybe he'd be in the uh -huh. movie more. And Troy Evans who's the guy who gets killed. He's put actor. If we ever do Ed, we'll talk about Troy Evans again. <laughs> I don't think we'll ever do Ed. Troy Evans is one of those that guy actors mm -hmm. from this. He was on ER for many years. Yes. He's one a, of the front desk guys. Particularly a TV actor from the mm -hmm. 80s and 90s. You'll recognize his face in an instant. Jim Carrey's landlord was a landlord in The Wrestler. Mark Margolis, who's also Hector Salamanca. That's who it was, Hector, yeah. In Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad and Better Call yeah. Saul. And he was also briefly, I forget this role, I think maybe he was one of the Lone Sharks in Hardball, which we covered earlier this year. So he's been in three movies we've covered at least, and maybe it's more than that. And then David Margulies is the doctor at Shady Acres, who is the mayor in Ghostbusters. Yes. Yeah. Okay, the depiction of the sport, is it actually a sports movie? Netflix says so. We said so. When I suggested to you to do something easy and quick, the movie's so short, that helps. Does help. But there is more football and football-related scenes and talk of football a lot in the whole film that I remembered when I watched it not that long ago. We've covered more spurious examples of quote-unquote sports picks than this. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much my response to you when you threw it out there. It'll be easy, and we have covered movies that are more spuriously connected to sports. I was reading also that the time that Finkel, well, I guess Einhorn now, I'm dead naming again, sorry, but when Einhorn kicks a football, they just dressed, what's his name again, the Dolphins kicker at that time. Oh, if you said it, I'd know it. In the clothes and had the actual kicker kick the ball through the roof of oh, that yeah? boathouse thing. And apparently the guy did it over and over and over again. They only had one shot on camera, but they got all kinds of takes. He successfully did yeah, it Yeah, he's over. that good a kicker. Yeah, I believe it. These you know guys. why? The laces were out. <laughs> <laughs>
the actual depiction of the sport is almost non-existent. That's why I was kidding earlier on about Snowflake being the most... But the sport is discussed so much, though. Oh, the whole movie revolves around it mm-hmm. constantly, for sure. I did appreciate the fact that they actually played the dated news clip of the fateful kick in 1984 where Finkel missed the field goal and the sports analysts within the world of the movie purposely pointed out that they thought the laces were out. And so oh, at that time. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So trying to contextualize, I think a little bit more just how disconnected from reality Ray Finkel turned Einhorn was because his whole world revolved around a fiction to begin with. The laces were in and then I missed the kick and then my whole world collapsed. It was all based on a lie to begin with. It was a cruel little needle that they stuck into this mm. movie. Weren't that supposed to be a reference to Scott Norwood? Wide right, Super Bowl, Buffalo Bills. He missed a kick. Not an easy one. It was about a 47-yarder, but he missed it right. Hal Michael's famous call, wide right. And he was still there, I'm pretty sure, that next year, but I don't think he played too much longer. It was a Mitch Williams kind of thing with him. Oh, really? Either the team drummed him out of the sport or the league did, or he just lost confidence. I didn't really follow the NFL that closely back in this era, but was that during the three-year run that the Bills had to the Super Bowl? Four-year run. It was the Four, first year so. they went against the Giants. They lost against them, then lost against Washington. Okay. That was a blowout. The Giants game obviously was close because they could have won on that kick. And then Dallas beat them up two years in a row. To be a kicker in the NFL, is there's instances of this kind of thing happening, not just in the Super Bowl, but even during the regular season, when you've got a climactic kick for a win in an important game, and you miss, and then it just destroys you mentally, and you just lose the confidence, and you're never quite the same player. Mm-hmm. It's very much like the closer role in baseball. Or Bill it? Buckner. I guess it could conceivably happen to any player. You cannot recover psychologically from it. Why I cite the closer role specifically is because you don't play for 90% of the game. No, you're not in the game at all. That's right. Buckner is in that game the whole time. Yeah, yeah. and you're brought in for a specific purpose. And, and you fail. you got to do it or the team's going to lose and you fail, the team loses, and you don't get another chance to get right back out on the field again, right? You're left to stew with that. In the case of a kicker, you'll probably get a chance the next game at some point. But in the case of a baseball closer, certainly, you might go games before you have another chance at redemption and in that time you're just left i'm sure thinking over and over and Mm -hmm. over about that loss particularly if it happens in the playoffs and that's what happened well super bowl at least to finkel slash einhorn mitch williams you said mitch Mitch williams Williams for sure didn't pitch too much longer after that happened the thing i was looking at with that two things one if i was mitch williams ray finkel bill buckner i would blame myself the rest of my life probably even if everyone else said we lost as a team because the flip side of that is the Red Sox could have scored more runs earlier and not have that game go extra or have the pitchers not throw wild pitches and walk everybody in the infamous 86 Mets-Red Sox World Series. The fictional game here, Marino could have thrown one more touchdown and they would have needed that kick. That's right. Mitch Williams, the Phillies could have scored more runs and it wouldn't have mattered. So that's why you say we lost as a team because why didn't you do more earlier in the game or you or you or you or you or you or in the case of Marino because he's playing the whole time, you personally do more. The closer couldn't do anything until he's brought in. And the kickers have very little influence on the game too. They play throughout the game usually, but... They can only do so much. That's the rational mindset to take, no question about it. You know as well as I do, just as somebody that likes to compete in even rec-level stuff, when you are called upon to accomplish something to help your team and you fail to do it, that's a tough pill to swallow. No, just, I know very well. I'm just saying that yeah. there's other elements of this that... Well, there's other perspectives you can yeah, definitely take. I wish sure. I could do it myself, but I don't do it very well. It's true. Well, I give this at a 5 to 10 because I can appreciate what Carrie's doing and the other actors are doing their best work against him. I think that Courtney Cox had to not break too much. I'm pretty sure I saw David Margulies, who plays the doctor at Shady Acres, break when <laughs> Carrie smashes his face against that bench. Yeah. thought maybe it was Courtney Cox, but it looks like it's him that just starts to laugh and they cut away at the right exact moment. 
So kudos to them to not laugh on camera with this guy who's acting like such a fool for an hour and a half. Yeah. But of course, there's also some pretty distasteful things in this with the transphobia stuff. But I overall would give it a 5 out of 10, even though I didn't really laugh at it. That was exactly the same score I was going to give it. I'm with you. I didn't really laugh all that much. And there's certainly some distasteful stuff towards the end. But you kind of take away from it, I guess, what you can. And it's mostly fine, I guess. <laughs> well, take a last sip of your beer there before I wrap up for the last time in this basement. I just took a last sip of my empty. I got nothing. So was mine. Hope it was good. Next time you hear us talk might be a little more hollow. We'll see, but have faith. I'll try to make that a good podcast recording space. This has been ideal with a six-foot ceiling and a drop ceiling at that. I won't have to duck. You will not have to duck. That's true. Unless we go in the basement there, which is also six feet high. Damn it. Well, we don't plan to. We plan to go into the spare room on the upper level. So we were talking about something pretty goofy today, but we were pretty serious two weeks ago when we did 61 asterisk. And we'll be talking about serious stuff again in two weeks from now as we gear up for the anniversary of the Rumble in the Jungle, 1974, October 30th, that was. And to do that, let's dig into the 20-year-old, somewhat, biopic of the greatest of all time as we jaw about Ali, meaning Muhammad Ali, of course, Michael Mann's film. I'm going to have to really gear up my linguistic skills, dial up my poetic abilities to 11 for that one, because if you're going to do any justice to Ali, you got to throw down some pretty impressive rhymes at some point or another. Float like a butterfly, sting like a Chris. That is my saying. <laughs> I have that tattooed on my back, so yeah. Okay, we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can find this podcast and all the places you look for podcasts. All our entire roster now is at 88 episodes we have done. And we'll be back in two weeks with Ali. Until then, I'll say this. The podcast is all over then.